Congresswoman Gabbard, you took issue with Senator Harris confronting Vice President Biden at the last debate. You called it a quote, false accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response. As the elected attorney general of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about reentering former offenders and getting them counseling. It Thank is you. why, and because I know that criminal justice Thank system you, is Senator. so broken, that I am an advocate for what Thank we you, need Senator. to do to not your, only your decriminalize, but legalize marijuana in the United States. I want to, I want to bring uh, Congresswoman uh, Gabbard back in your response. The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. Welcome fellow plebs, my name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebi. Alright everybody, welcome to episode number 9 of the Tribunus Plebis podcast. Um, I actually want to begin today by mentioning where I think I was a little bit um, wrong, or at least missed a little bit of an angle in an earlier episode. Um, where I was talking about the Vanity Fair letter that talked about censorship and free speech. In that episode, I kind of dumped on many of the signers of this open letter because they were wealthy, powerful, and this issue, to the extent that it exists, doesn't really apply to them. They are, in any real view, not able to be canceled. But then I read an article where the author talked about this aspect of the letter and you know, I, I'm sorry, I really don't remember where I read this, so my apologies to the author. But in this article, they mentioned how these rich and powerful people signing this letter was important because they are able to, because of, because of that wealth and power. You know, they're able to take those slings and arrows while perhaps less powerful, less wealthy people just can't do it. In effect, they act as a bit of a firewall. And I think this is a 
you know, a valid argument and it's a good point and the author was correct to bring that up. I definitely stand by my larger points in that episode, but I wanted to acknowledge this and to say that, you know, I really should have recognized this point from the start. It's something I talk about a lot when it comes to unionizing, in fact. The employees who are the least likely to get fired and who, you know, wield a lot of influence and therefore are you know, at least at risk of firings or retaliation are incredibly important to get on that on the front lines when a company begins to organize. Such a movement shouldn't be led by, you know, the men and women still in their six month probationary period where they can be fired for literally anything or nothing. I've been thinking a lot about organizing sports lately as an example, and I think this idea holds there too. Until the most powerful athletes in that sport decide to step up, you know, the champions, the the draws, the highest paid, and so on, nothing will get better for the 99% that reside below that marquee. That being said and uh, acknowledged, let's just uh, talk about the post office for a minute or two. Right now, the Trump administration, and let's be very explicit about dropping this dumpster fire right at the feet of our giant orange president, is actively attempting to kill the United States Postal Service as we know it. And uh, I'll get right to the point and just tell you that's horrific. And this isn't some weird exaggeration by, you know, Trump's political opponents either. This is a very real thing. The White House itself released a report on this called the Reform Plan and Reorganization Recommendations. And the recommendations concerning the post office start on page 68. And I will link to the report in the description of this podcast for you to take a look at this. This report was released in June of 2018. And between then and now, we have begun to see the machinations to make this proposal a reality. I won't bore you by reading the entirety of the Postal Service section of this report, but in the section summary, they wrote this. Quote, this proposal would restructure the United States postal system and return it to a sustainable business model or prepare it for future conversion from a governmental agency to a privately held corporation. End quote. This is all terrible for the American citizen. And I just want to note that these attacks did not start with this report in 2018, and they did not begin with Trump either. It's been going on for a long time. Milton Friedman one of the Tribunus Plebe's top 10 most shitty human beings ever, was calling for privatization as far back as 1986, and I'm sure it goes back even further than that. One of the biggest blows against the USPS was struck in 2006 when Bush signed into law a bill that required the Postal Service to prefund its entire retirement health obligations for 75 years in advance. This is absolutely unprecedented in even either private or governmental organizations, and it was meant to destroy the agency. So just think about that time frame for a second. They had to pre-fund health liabilities for 75 years into the future. It's insane. They were forced to fund health care for people who haven't even begun working for them yet. Hell, they were funding pensions for people still breastfeeding, and in, in some cases for some people who weren't even alive yet. And listen, before I start ranting about how evil these people are, just consider something. You live in Boston, Massachusetts, and you write a letter to your mom in Los Angeles, California. For just 55 cents, for just 55 cents, somebody from the post office will drive to your house and pick up that letter. That letter will then be delivered 
to your mother's home in Los Angeles within three days for 55 cents. Now, try to do that with UPS or FedEx. And I just checked with UPS and I found out that it would cost me $9.25 to ship an envelope to Los Angeles. I don't even want to know what they'd charge if this was really a rural destination. And this isn't just about how you know, great a service the post office is, and not even about the pure bargain of it either. The Postal Service has also been a great way for people to pass into and remain in the middle class. Great, steady jobs, good pay, and union representation have combined to make postal work a true career and true wealth generator, especially for minorities and poor families. About 40% of the postal workforce is minority, and about 40% is made up of women. And the post office also employs about 20% veterans. So what I'm saying is that the post office is one of the great successes of the United States, private or public, and it's a damn bargain to boot. Plus, and this is extremely important to think about here, the Postal Service is legally obligated to serve all Americans, regardless of geography, at uniform price and quality. A private company will absolutely not do that. In fact, part of the privatization plan is to not deliver to everybody, regardless of geography and at uniform price and quality. The proposed privatization plans actually explicitly include in them language to deliver to centralized locations which citizens would have to get to to collect their mail. The administration, and especially the conservative side of the political aisle, are also intent on undermining and destroying the postal workers' union and lowering wages and benefits to those same workers, all while making them work harder, longer, and, and in more dangerous conditions. A large part of the governmental effort to hamstring this agency resides in a perverse desire to end the public sector unions, unions in general, and organized labor more broadly. In a sick attempt to get the broader country behind their efforts to kill the post office, the Trump administration has decided to make the user experience at the post office so dreadful that the people rise up against it. Trump is closing post office locations, slowing delivery times, and understaffing locations which remain open. He is doing this by appointing a malevolent political puppet as the Postmaster General. Oh, did I mention that the new Postmaster General, a man by the name of Louis DeJoy, is a major Trump donor? Yep, he sure is, which just adds an additional layer of disgusting to an already thick coat. DeJoy has already implemented broad changes that have harmed the post office in intentional ways. Then, on August 7th, he massively reshuffled leadership in the agency in a move that has been dubbed the Friday Night Massacre, all in a bid to further cripple it. Again, this is all intentional. As we currently sit, the post office has something like a 90% approval rating. It is by far the most supported government agency of our time. It is this approval rating that the Trump administration is trying to undermine. They will purposefully and intentionally cripple the organization to force it to suffer more financial losses, and then they will get on TV and tell you how the post office sucks because it lost money. They will reduce the amount of open post offices, and then they will point out how crowded and inconvenient the remaining locations have gotten. They will extend delivery times and then make sure to crow about how your letters and packages are taking longer than they ever have before. They will do all of these things and then gaslight you to make you think that all of this was inevitable government failings. And all of that will have been lies. The truth is, we need more 
United States Postal Service, not less of it. Sure, some changes might be necessary. Consolidate some mail centers, maybe. Open a couple of bull mail centers, possibly. Close some post offices, open others, negotiate with the union. Yeah, maybe all of that. But we need to make sure that all Americans get the mail service that they deserve. And that means home delivery at equal price and quality, regardless of geography. We also need to allow the post office to expand into postal banking. Postal banking is pretty much what the name says it is. The post office will act as bank for citizens who are not properly served by regular banks, especially the poor amongst us. People will be able to maintain simple savings and checking accounts, get small loans, and cash checks at post offices across the country. The poor are helped by this simply by being able to have accounts with small limits of money without paying exorbitant fees to do so. They would also be able to cash checks without having to rely on those absolute vultures who operate check-cashing businesses in poor neighborhoods. And just as a side note here, fuck those bastards in check-cashing joints. They are raw evil. Oh, and speaking of blood-sucking leeches and depraved human beings, postal banking can also rid us of payday lenders as well. Postal banking is worth it just to rid our world of these two subhuman species the profiteering check casher, and the payday lender. Truly despicable wastes of flesh. The USPS can be saved. This healthcare funding for 75 years is absolutely absurd on its face. Nobody ever has or ever will justify this insanity. Let's start there. Get rid of it. From there, work it out. We need it as constituted before the politicians intentionally wrecked it. We need our mail six days a week delivered to and from our homes by well-paid, unionized workers in a safe environment. This might be the most uncontroversial thing that I have ever argued for, by the way. Don't let these goons destroy this country. All right, on to topic two. Ranked choice voting. The first thing I'd like to say about ranked choice voting, or RCV, which is sometimes also called instant runoff voting, is that it is a very simple, straightforward system and idea which carries with it an immense power to fundamentally change the power structures within our government in America. However, despite that simplicity, I have found it exceedingly difficult to really develop a good, concise elevator pitch for the concept. Therefore, I'm going to read this quote that I picked up from a website somewhere a long time ago, and I I don't remember the website. Quote, Ranked choice voting gives you the power to rank candidates on your ballot from your favorite to your least favorite, even leaving some off entirely. On election night, all of the ballots are counted for voters' first choices. If one candidate receives an outright majority, he or she wins. If no candidate receives a majority, The candidate with the fewest first choices is eliminated and voters who like that candidate the best have their ballots instantly counted for their second choice. This process repeats and last place candidates lose out until one candidate reaches a majority and wins. Your vote counts for your second choice only if your first choice has been eliminated. End quote. Now, I know that might have sounded less than concise to some of you, but I hope that we understand a little better what is going on, at least on a broad level, with ranked choice voting. 
and uh, it will definitely get clearer as we go along. Now let's look at why this may be a good idea to implement. We currently live under what many people refer to as a two-party system. And this is accurate in a certain sense, but not really a truism. Our system is not required to be two-party. When people say we live under a two-party system, what they are telling us is that we basically live under a pair of mafia families who control everything but provide us with just enough of an illusion of choice that we accept it at face value and rarely question things. It all seems natural, and anyway, the Green Party, the Rainbow, and the Libertarian parties, they all exist, so it's not really a duopoly of power-hungry ghouls. It's just a free market, bro. If one of these other parties was any good, then they'd have representatives in Congress and the White House. That's how markets work. And all of that is nonsense, as we will discuss a bit later in this episode. But the very fact that two parties have dominated our elections for so long is the only reason that they remain so. They have deep roots, long reach, a metric shit ton of money, and they have systematically created a political environment where running as any sort of third party for any position of significance is a guaranteed loss. And just for a reference point here so we don't perhaps get lost with the term, I will be using the term third party as a sort of catch-all for any party that is not part of the Democratic or Republican parties. Now, these two dominant parties have even managed to create a set of rules which effectively prevents third-party candidates from even appearing in debates, let alone actually competing. So just think about that for a minute or two. The two dominant parties are allowed to create the rules for elections. Everything from how names get on the ballot, right down to who can attend debates. We saw this play out last election cycle as the Democratic Party continually shuffled the rules which determined who could appear at the debates and definitely seemed to cater these rules to certain people to keep them from getting a spot behind the podium and all the while ensuring that others would not make it up there. The two parties have an absolute stranglehold on electoral procedures and rules. They have created a nearly impervious firewall to insulate themselves from any serious challenge. Because of this, during elections of significance, like mayor, governor, congress, president, and so forth, voters are left to feel forced to vote for the lesser of two evils or to strategically vote against whomever they view as the worst option. And let's use, tw let's use the 2016 election as an example here. In our last presidential election, we were faced with two third-party candidates that had relatively large appeal. And at this time, even single-digit percentages are, you know, relatively large numbers when it comes to the third parties. We had Gary Johnson with the Libertarian Party and Jill Stein with the Green Party. As a general rule, voters for Johnson would tend to either come from people who might not otherwise vote at all, or they pull from the Republican Party. And votes for Stein would also tend to come from those who either would not otherwise vote or to pull votes from the Democratic Party candidate. And this is an important aspect to understand about our elections, that there is this game theory aspect to them. And that aspect can be blunted with RCV. For example, if a voter prefers Johnson, the libertarian, they are forced to weigh something. If they do vote for Johnson, who will almost certainly get under 10% of the overall vote and definitely will not win, and a voter might be happy with that because they felt Johnson was the best choice. But here's the other aspect that this voter thinks about, especially if they live in a swing state. 
that vote may improve the chance of Hillary Clinton winning. This voter, after he weighs these competing pressures, will very likely decide to vote for the Republican, Trump in this case, in this scenario because they would prefer a Republican over a Democrat due to a broad political views. This further solidifies and locks in the two parties, and it happens on both sides. We need to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to fall into the Republican-Democrat divide and fool ourselves into believing that these institutional, systemic issues exist only on one side of the aisle, the other side, and not our side. We even need to concentrate on not just crying about everything all the time, and we can't be out here just trying to be the trolliest edgelord that we can be. This game theory method of voting also helps, because of two-party rulemaking, to prevent third parties from receiving federal election funds and entering debates because they fail to meet certain vote total thresholds. We simply must break this two-party duopoly control over our government, and our current methods absolutely will not and cannot do that. RCV is a way to help break this paradigm without forcing people to vote strategically out of fear. In our above example, our voter, in an RCV system, would likely have voted like this. First on the ballot would have been Johnson, the Libertarian. Second would have been Trump, the Republican. And he would have left all other candidates off of his ballot. His first choice is his true favorite, and he will not be punished if Johnson does not win. His vote will transfer to his second choice, and only other choice, Trump. Remember, you can vote for as many of the candidates as you'd like, and you may also leave them off the ballot completely. The same ideas, of course, apply to voters who favor the other side of the ticket. As our two major political parties currently stand, and I refer to the party structure itself here, as well as the candidates and the voters who identify with the party, they have an ideological divide between themselves. Well, I mean, divide sounds almost moderate. It's more of an ever-widening gulf full of resentment, distrust, political actions that flout the Constitution, and all manner of dishonest, despicable nonsense imaginable. While we remain a two-party country, this gulf will only grow ever wider. If a politician were to attempt to bridge that divide, they would be met with a strong rebuke of their party's most loyal and enthusiastic voters not to mention other party politicians, and a likely loss at the polls. Obviously, this puts even the most theoretically agreeable politicians in a bit of a bind. This results in the gulf growing even more. Personally, I think it would be a good thing to get reps from more parties into the game. Imagine a Congress with the House divided into multiple slices. Republicans have 30% of seats, Democrats 40%, Green 10 Libertarians 8%, Socialist Party, 5. Rainbow, 4. Tea Party has 3%. The once dominant two parties would be forced to work with other parties or get nothing done. This would also help prevent third-party electees from being forced to caucus with one of the big parties, like Bernie Sanders has to do as an independent. In this scenario, the Green and Libertarian parties have real power. So do the other, less represented parties. They can maintain their own caucus, their own platform, and demand concessions for their votes. This is important because it could pull politics away from the just straight left-right tug-of-war that is tearing this country apart and stretch it in third and fourth or even fifth directions, thereby forcing it to a, you know, like a more amorphous center. RCV would also help buffer against populist demagogue candidates from either side, 
These types would be relegated to their own party usually and very likely kept to the outskirts of political importance. Nationally, this new voting system would likely not show immediate massive change. However, in city and state elections, where candidates from smaller parties would be more well-known, there would likely be a noticeable influx of green, libertarian, rainbow, and similar party representatives. This would allow people and parties to establish their platform and work their way into countywide, statewide, and then countrywide races where RCV would help them make gains and put pressure on establishment figures. No more voting for the lesser of two evils. No more having to understand game theory before you enter the polling booth. Now, how about some of the questions that you might have listening to this? Well, one question I've seen asked is this. If I can vote for three of the six candidates and my three choices are eliminated before the fifth and final round, then does my vote even count? Of course it does. This is something referred to as an exhausted ballot in RCV one on which all of the chosen candidates are eliminated before the final round. This is not very likely to happen in national elections, as there are not normally enough candidates for it to be likely, but it can at lower levels where there are more choices. Once your choices are eliminated, the ballot is set aside. It is exhausted. Now, one might say that their vote no longer counts, but in the end, It is really the same thing as voting for anyone who doesn't win in a normal winner-take-all format election. Your vote counts 100%. You just didn't pick the winner. And as much as that might suck on a personal level, picking the loser in a ranked-choice voting scenario is no different than, you know, picking the loser in a more traditional American-style election. So let's talk about some possible cons here. After all, nothing is absolutely perfect. The biggest con, so far as I can tell, is a possible lack of vetting of candidates, both officially and unofficially. As I understand it, RCV breaks some of the barrier to entry. We could theoretically have dozens of candidates for mayor or governor. Personally, I view this as something which is more good than bad. We simply must break the hold that these two parties have over who can and can't run for office in this country. So how would we deal with all of these candidates? Well, most would be eliminated in the first few rounds anyway, but it is still an issue. And there are ways to deal with this issue. As an example, some RCV systems may have a minimum amount of first place votes to even officially be counted, say something like 2%. So anyone with less than 2% of first place votes is immediately removed before the counting even begins. This can help cull the flotsam that might gather around the edges and allow us to better focus on the more serious candidates. Here's another thing that some might consider a drawback. Counting votes will take longer. This length of time will likely not be terribly noticeable if a race has three or four candidates, like in a presidential or congressional race, but it could be a minor issue at lower levels. And one thing I'll say here is that if we can't wait a little while, even maybe the day after an election, or even a few days after, to get our favored candidate into office, then we are so fundamentally broken that we will need more help to save us than is likely to ever come. If we've had our brains so decayed by the slick graphics and choreography of election night reporting on cable news, and we've been so trained for instant gratification that we can't wait a couple of hours to find out who the leader of our country will be, then our country is already dead. Another small negative is that it is a little bit more expensive mostly because of the previous con, the time it takes to count. 
Computers certainly help here, but hand counting will necessarily cost more. And finally, the biggest con for anything new in America. First of all, it's a change, and people will need to be educated about how it works. And if there is one thing that I think we can all probably agree with is that American citizens are not fans of change. As soon as an RCV vote hits a ballot in a state, both the Republican and Democrats like to resist it and scream about how the other side wants RCV because it will help them and hurt us and blah, blah, blah. But what they're really screaming is that neither group wants RCV because it will help break their stranglehold on political power in this country. And that latter thing, the stranglehold on political power, that is one of the most important things we can do in this country right now. And it's the last thing either of our parties want. This total control of who can attend debates, who can make it onto ballots, and who can actually be elected are fetters on our lives that simply must be broken if we have any chance at all. Now, as to the education part, while it is a minor issue that has to be addressed, just think about this. If you've listened to this podcast episode, you'll see how easy that is to do. You listen to some relatively random person explain it, and I think you probably understand exactly how this works. Education is a minor issue, but it is certainly not insurmountable, not by any stretch of the imagination. 